slowly turning See the shining sparks of light Each one new, each one burning Through the darkness of the night We call them stars, my son Say stars That one is Mars My son Can you say it? New word today Say stars As they blink all around us Playing starry-eyed games Who would think it astounds us Simply naming their name. Hello and welcome to Broadway Videos. This week on Broadway for Sunday, November 29th, 2020. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, good day. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years with numerous publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, HowlRound. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? I'm well. Good to have you back. Good to be back. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest. Maury Yeston is joining us. Broadway fans know Maury from Nine, Grand Hotel, The Royal Family, Titanic. Uh, But most of all, we have... A, a treat here because he's released an album of his demos, which are the the genesis of all these great properties that we know of Maury. Maury, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you. I hope everybody listening is safe and, and healthy. And it's the truth. Tell us about your demos. You've been pulling this together for PS Classics. Uh, how did you pick and choose which ones ended up in this project? Oh, that's great. Actually, actually, uh, it, it wasn't really difficult to pull, pull it together. I, I, just have been in the habit of when I write something, and I'm talking about all the way back when I was just, you know, in my first and second and third year of the BMI Music Theater Workshop with Lehman Engel teaching us for years and years and years. And um, that was way back in the early 70s. I had, I was, I had been a graduate student at Yale working on my PhD in, in, in music theory. And um, uh, Alan Menken uh, joined, I guess, a few me- months after I joined, I joined, and you can join as a composer or a lyricist, and Lehman, after he heard my stuff, said, you know, I think like uh, somebody else in my class, Edward Kleban, I want to develop mm-hmm. your skills in both. And, and Alan the same, and uh, Alan had, uh, had graduated from NYU, so we were there with Ed, and Carol Hall, and Judd Walden, who had already had Raisin on Broadway, and uh, it was just a fantastic gang. And he was teaching us how to write how to write musical theater. And uh, um, in any case, you would you would either well he had a way of doing it. I don't I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But simply, you would come in with a song, 
And the great thing about the BMI Music Theater Workshop, which is still in existence, and after Lehman died in 1982, I sat in his chair for 27 years and still from time to time teach a class. People come in with material and they simply play for the group. <laughs> and, mm. and, you know, it's the, it, is, it is the last bastion of anything in New York City, the greatest thing that you can get in New York City in the rarest commodity in the world, which is friendly criticism. And, and it doesn't even matter what people say. You play... The, your your song, and you can tell in one second how the audience responds to it, and and then people talk about it, and then you can come in the next week with a rewrite, and that's how you learn to rewrite. That's how you learn to be in preview before you're in preview, and you just keep on working because you have an instant audience to bounce things off of. And um, what I it was simply my practice to um, just in order to get a, a kind of an objective sense of what something I had written. Uh, without having to hear my voice in my head singing it and playing the piano at the same time, just to record it on a home tape recorder, mm -hmm. or in some cases, go into a studio. And you know that was the time, and we were talking about the early 70s, when you could buy a TAC four-track tape recorder, which means that you could bounce off the four tracks, one and another, and create 12, 12 independent lines of you singing in, in harmony with yourself. The, that's exactly what the Beatles had been doing uh, in, in the 60s. And, um, and so since I do write chorally sometimes and contrapuntally sometimes, uh, it, was, it was very easy for me either at home or to go into a studio and just, you know, if it was going to be something I had written like, uh, for example, The Bells of St. Sebastian, I could record all 12 parts singing. Uh, and I would do this on a regular basis, uh, something that we ultimately uh, called uh, the Maury Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and at the time, I was teaching harmony and counterpoint, elementary music theory to all of my Yale freshmen and sophomores, which included Tommy Krasker, David Loud, Ted Sperling. These are now Broadway royalty people. You know, they... they, they uh, an unbelievable group of brilliant people. And I, you know, if I got to class early or, or after the class, I had some time and I had just written something, I would, you know, play, play a song I had just written to, you know, some of the kids in the class who, who, who hung out. And Tommy and I became very good friends. Uh, uh, ultimately, um, uh, ultimately, uh, Tommy, uh, 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 I'm going to out him now. Ultimately, uh, <laughs> he was a senior and I was, I was the director of undergraduate studies. I had to sign off you know, on all of the, all of the, 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 the uh, academic records so that they could graduate. And, um, and, and Tommy was, uh, it looked like he had uh, an incomplete in a couple of courses. So I called him and I said, what, 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 how come you have these incompletes? And he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm busy. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm directing, uh, uh, she loves me in Trumbull and the Trumbull, <laughs> uh, college, uh, squash court. And uh, I'm directing Fiddler in uh, the uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, dining hall. And anyway, so I said, you know what? We're just going to replace these songs with uh, an independent course in music, uh, in, in music theater, uh, and and I'll be your advisor. Get out of my office. <laughs> 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 and almost as soon as he graduated, we we, we uh, uh, you know we became good friends. And when it came time to do the nine workshop, he was the 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 pianist in fact uh, the the morning after the night i wrote the overture to nine he accompanied uh, the uh, all of the women in it and ultimately became the the pianist in the 
in the pit orchestra and we were, we were so rushed to get that show on. Uh, there were a lot of orchestrations that you know, weren't ready yet. And Tommy would play the, the piano accompaniments of them behind a red curtain. So you couldn't see him, but that's what was on stage. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he one day said that he wanted to write an autobiography called Behind the Red Cur- Curtain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so and so so because of that, it always was very helpful to me just as a per- just as a personal private process of my work to be able to stand back and listen to it and then decide what I wanted to do with it. And ultimately, you do get some very good ones that you can use, because in those days, in, in those days, uh, producers would say, oh, you know, send, they would say, send me a tape, right? Mm-hmm. A- yeah. And, uh, but I was very old school and I was, it, this was so long ago, besides sending a tape, you would actually go to the person's office and play live. I mean, like, I, you, like Tin Pan Alley, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what you, that's what you would do. I mean, I played things for Hal Prince and Jerry Robbins and, and, Oh my God! When it was time to do Titanic, and we were looking for a director, I, at my living room, I, I played in my for Trevor Nunn and Nick Heitner and Mike Nichols mm. and 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 Jonathan Miller and in, in London, uh, Franco Zeffirelli. Oh my God! Wow. I played the Titanic for Franco Zeffirelli, and he kept on stroking the back of my head and saying, "You know, you will come to Positano and play this for me on the piano that Leonard Bernstein gave me." Um, and then he came up with some suggestions that probably would have cost $8 million to put on stage. (laughs) So, so in any case, so these, these are demos and, and Tommy knew a lot of them and, and, um, and the revelatory in, in many ways, because, and sometimes they sound exactly like how they ended up on stage, except you can hear in the piano arrangement, that, you know, what the orchestration became. And you can hear in, in the multiple voices as, for example, something like doing the latest rag or the, or the Germans at the spa, note for note, you know, that's exactly what was put on stage. But there are other interesting uh, demos that uh, that are on uh, this album did we say what the name of the album is it's a tommy tommy decided to call it maury sings yes <laughs> <laughs> and 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 those other ones are early versions of things that changed when we put them in the show or were replaced when we put them in the show uh i can tell you about a couple of them uh, if you're interested yeah <laughs> well one classic one was peter stone and i was you know it was my idea to write titanic i started i i got the idea in in, in 1985 when they found the ship underwater and i thought this is a really this is a uh, this is a, a a tale that we need to tell about the 20th century and a few months after i had the idea the space shuttle blew up and so i thought mm. yeah i you know this is what we're talking about right so, sort of uh, uh Un, 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 <coughs> uncontrolled uh, 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 confidence in the infallibility of technology leads to these kinds of disasters. But I also felt that, that, that you know, building a space shuttle or building a ship that's going to be its own lifeboat and therefore it can't sink. It, these are the dreams that we do to save human lives, like salt creating the vaccine. We and and sometimes we fail, but but the, it's about our dreams, and it's about the dreams of those those third class passengers who wanted a better life in America, and the dreams of those second class people who you know who had been created by the industrial revolution that created the Titanic, and they wanted to rub elbows with the rich and famous, and of course the. 
the billionaires who control the world, they wanted their hegemony to last forever. And all of those dreams were on that ship. And, and so um, um, Peter Stone and I had run up for the second time. The first time was we ran up to save my one and only. Uh, and uh, there was trouble there. And Mike Nichols and Stone and I ran and, and, uh, to, to Pachka, as we say in Yiddish, uh, and to give <laughs> advice. Second time was uh, Toon called me at about two o'clock in the morning and said, I have a room for you at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel with the piano, come save the show. And it was Grand Hotel. And I ran up there and met with Wright and Forrest, who were wonderful guys. They were both in their 80s. And of course, they had written Song of Norway and Kismet and Stranger in Paradise. And I said, uh, gentlemen, you know, it, you know, it can be a nightmare to have another writer in town. I'm just here to give you the best advice I can. And Wright turned to Forrest and said, oh, doesn't he, look how young he is. Doesn't he remind you of us when we first met Cole Porter? <laughs> 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 and so... And, 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 and so the reason you won't hear any demos of uh, the, I think, seven or eight things I wrote for Grand Hotel in Boston were that I wrote them on a piano inside a hotel room. So there's no, no way to have demos. Uh, <laughs> and um, when, when, so when Peter and I were writing Titanic, we talked about it a long time. And uh, we decided that uh, we, have to tell, we have to tell the audience why, why, why it crashed, why it sank. And we, we figured that there were, th- there were three very important people who could tell you that. The stoker down in the hold could tell mm. you why they were going too fast. He was being asked to shovel coal faster and faster because they were trying to b- break the speed record across the Atlantic. And the, and, um, the, uh, and the lookout could tell you why they hit the iceberg because there was no moon that night. There were no stars that night. There was clouds and, and there was no wind. And so the water that would lap up against the edge of the iceberg and make kind of a frothy white thing, you couldn't see that. And, hmm. and uh, the telegraph operator could tell you why even, there was a ship 10, 10 miles away, but they didn't respond to the SOS because the, the guy had gone to sleep. And right. after the wreck of the Titanic, a, a law was passed that said you have to have at least two operators on every ship so that when one sleeps, the others are awake. And so we decided, I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, if because we know that the, the concept of a Senate investigating, com- the first Senate investigating committee was called in 1912 to investigate the sinking of the Titanic. And there was a Queen's bench uh, uh, investigation in London at the same time. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had the stoker and, uh, and uh, he would be there shoveling coal, and suddenly we'd hear a gavel. And, and a voice would say, you know, the Queen's Bench uh, investigation will come to order, call the first witness. And even though he was on the Titanic, right, after it had just left port, he would turn out and he would answer as a witness and testify into the future while he was working in the past before, before the ship hit. And it was really surrealistic, and it was a lot of fun. We thought... This is, we thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And so when you hear Barrett's song on Maury Sings Yeston, you'll hear that version of it. And, uh, and Peter and I, we, we just loved that because it, was, because it was unexpected and it was crazy and it seemed to work. And when uh, ultimately Richard Jones uh, came in as director, he was at a meeting in my living room, uh, the three of us, and, and Richard said to Peter, you know, Peter, I think these inquiries are very, very interesting, but I do think it would be simpler and more effective if we just got on the boat, go straight ahead, straight melodrama, and not do these things as, uh, as sort of testimony in the future. Mm. And, and Peter said, okay, 
Now, now, anybody who knows, knew Peter very well, <laughs> and, and even if you didn't, knows that the thing that Peter mm-hmm. really hated to do was to cut. And he, I mean, even if, even if you would ask Peter to cut a, par- <laughs> a, a, a parenthesis, he would, he, he would always, he would say, but that's the only reason I wanted to write the show. <laughs> so, so, but Peter cut it. And, um, and so uh, what you hear Brian Darcy James sing on the cast album and on mm-hmm. stage uh, before that version, it had been the version that you'll hear on, on uh on the um, on my demo uh, on this album and and I still I still love it and Peter and I you know mm-hmm. ever since the show won the Tony and went all over the world he always said to me you know if we ever do it in London we really ought to put back those surrealistic testimony things because <laughs> he, he he loved them so well, that's on that note Maury did you happen to see that show that was done off Broadway some years ago where they basically performed the testimony from the from the inquiry? Oh no, I no, I but I read all of it, but I'm I'm sorry I didn't see it. Yeah, it was you you know they actually restored the um the 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 what's the word for it? The whistle, the uh the you know, the huge whistle, the yes. the, the they restored it, the actual one from the bottom of the ocean. That's fantastic. And, and then they 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 blew it and they recorded it and they used that in the <laughs> that is fantastic. No, it was amazing. But, but but you know, reality really spoils theater because because you know it's it's your it's you know being literal uh, uh, does isn't necessarily the best the best thing that's going to be effective on stage, which which is very very interesting. You know, I I, I did a I, I did an interview with the Wall Street Journal uh, Journal a, a number of years ago. I can't even remember when, but I said something, and it ended up being the quote of the week, uh, and. Mm. and and it was, I was sort of inspired by a Debussy. Debussy said once, art is the most magnificent lie. And I said, you know, <laughs> theater, the theater is a lie in which we harpoon the imagination of the audience in creating the illusion that's on stage. And that's why I love theater so much, uh, because, you know, I can, play, I can play a little chord and then play another chord and Shelley Birch can come out on a bare stage and say, Guido, why did you bring me to this beach? And all of a sudden, you don't have to spend $250,000 <laughs> on sand. And, and the, the chord coming in and out sounds like a wave coming in and out. And we make that kind of magic. And it's all, it's all in your mind. It came, from my, it came from my two first experiences on, 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 in Broadway. When I was 10 years old, my mom took, took me to see My Fair Lady. Uh, and uh, Julie Andrews was only 10 years older than I was. And, and uh, I, it just knocked me out to see Julie and Rex and, and those mm. costumes. And later on, mm. she brought me to see uh, Robert Morris in, in How to Succeed. And I, I remember like it was yesterday, I couldn't have been more than about 12 or 13, I don't know. And he came to the edge of the stage and he, he with nothing but we're surrounded by space, he was there at the edge and he looked out and, you know, he looked up at the balcony and look, just looking straight ahead and he pointed his finger forward into air and he started to sing, you've got that cool, clean. And I thought, oh my God, he's, he's singing to himself in a mirror. And of course there was no mirror and no reverse angle. All there was was me supplying all of the scenery and the whole concept in my head. And that's when I realized that the theater is a magic 
box. And, and, and so, uh, again, when, when you hear these demos, you'll see how the composition of the music in some cases, which is so very much influenced by what I've learned from Schubert and Schumann and Brahms about how they paint the whole action and drama of what the subject matter of a song is. As for example, there's a song by Schubert in which a father is galloping on a horse, holding his baby child, trying to get to the doctor before the, the, the child dies. Mm. Or if you just listen to Debussy's La Mer, you can smell the salt air. Or, <laughs> or, or, or Richard Strauss's Don Quixote, where you, know, you can actually, you, you see Sancho Panza and you see Don Quixote charging to the, all done in music. And, and so these, I, my modus operandi has always been to have the piano paint that. I mean, I'll never forget when we were getting ready to do nine, Tommy said to me, he said, Yeston, music is in, it, the, Europe is in the music is what he said, and we don't need a set. So I want to do it on 24 boxes on a white set. And he drew it. And I said, well, that looks like an orchestra. So Guido can just be the conductor of an orchestra mm. of women. Mm. And if that's the case, then why would the band play the overture? I'll write an overture for the women. Wow. And, and that's, that's how that happened. Uh, and so I guess the, the, it's a big answer sure. to your question, but the answer is, is that these demos were exactly how I developed what it is that I do, which is with only music and lyrics and a piano, <laughs> you should see it. You, you should see France and Germany and Europe and a big ship and, and death coming to life and and everything that I've ever written should be should be there and pictorially there and emotionally there in the demo. And can I ask can I ask sure. you a question about that though? Because that's a really interesting statement. Um did Titanic need to be so big of a production on Broadway then? No, it didn't. But you know, th- th- there was Richard Jones, uh who is uh, who is the most brilliant man and the most interesting and, and just, I, I should say, lives in a kind of alternative reality sometime. I'll never forget Peter Stone. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Richard. I just have to tell this story. It was one very frustrating day and Peter was talking to the cast and he said, Richard's idea of good communication is leaving a note for you in a hollow tree, tree in Central Park. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, so there was, there was always the impetus to, you know, it's a Broadway show. You're sp- supposed to spend a lot of money. You all may remember that they spent $10 million taking out literally the floor of the stage at the lunch and replacing mm-hmm. it with a three-level elevator that would go yeah. up and make the ship tilt. When, in fact, a Tom Sutherland in, uh, in, in, in London at the Southwark, Southwark Theatre uh, uh, proved with a production of having only 20 people and six people in the band – that that's really all you need and, and hardly a set at all that done that way ever since all over the world. You just don't need, but you know, in Broadway, there's, you know, there's, you feel producers feel in those days and still, I think sometimes that in addition to a wonderful show, it's great to knock people's eyes out. I mean, you know, when I, when I saw, my Fair Lady years ago, there was Cecil Beaton costumes, and, and, and incredibly, there were two turntables uh, at, at the Winter Garden, and it was just <laughs> extraordinary. 
This might be a good time to ask you about the wonderful production of Titanic at the Signature down in uh, Arlington, Virginia, which uh, I, I think Eric Schaefer directed, right? And then, and then there was, uh, was that the same a version of that same production that went to Japan? Is that correct, Maury? Uh, it, it, went, it went to Seoul, Korea. Seoul, Seoul Korea. South Korea. And then and there were there was some talk of bringing it to Broadway, but of course, yes. you know, so much has happened since then. I, I don't know. Well, if you- the only reason the only reason you can't get anything on Broadway is because there 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 are too many planes circling circling too few runways. Oh, it's yeah. just so difficult to get a theater, and and uh, even and and producers and theater owners are always going to opt for a new show before they're going to opt for a, a, a revival. Because revivals simply don't last as long as new shows, right. uh, and, and, and for for one reason, and you know it, it's just uh, you know we had a shot I think, uh, and and you know Barry Weisler was involved as well. He's a wonderful producer, and uh, and we had a shot, but the theater that we thought we were going to get uh, uh, booked honeymoon in Vegas. What a wonderful shot, by the way, and a, and of course a wonderful composer, mm. um, and so. You know, it's just the luck of the draw. Um, but the thing is, is that I find that um, I find that today, not only my career, but so many others are non-Broadway centric because there are so many wonderful places in the world where you can do your work in not only all over America, but in many countries, certainly in London. Um, but, you know, uh, as I speak, you know, there's a production of nine a full first class production run on stage in Tokyo that opened two weeks ago. And uh, there's, there's also a plan to do that show in Budapest where they, they did Titanic and, uh, and Seoul is planning their fourth production of Phantom and uh, the little Titanic toured China last year and is going to tour again. And I just read a, a new German translation uh, for a, a production of nine in Vienna. And, and, you know, Broadway is a long street now. It goes from Broadway to it goes from the West End to Broadway to Hollywood Boulevard to the Ginza. Um, the the cut that really interested me was the fact that uh, you included the Queen of Basin Street. Oh uh, yeah. Now that was a show that uh, really all of us had high hopes for. If I remember correctly, it was Jay Preston Allen on the book. Is that right? Oh yeah, it was Jay Allen on the book. Here's uh, here's how it happened. Tommy and I. Um, uh, Tommy and I were, of course, uh, very close friends, and I had won the Richard Rogers Prize, the first one, and it was a forty thousand dollar production downtown for uh, I don't know three or four weeks, and and uh, Mario Fratti, uh, who had written the original book, was a member of the um, Outer Critic Circle, and uh, and they had an honorary dinner, and the guest that year was Tommy Toon, and Mario was sitting next to him, and he said to Toon, he said, you know, I have written a musical too. Uh, it is based on Fellini's Eight and a Half, and we call it Nine. So Tommy, of course, <laughs> cracked. And, uh, and, 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 and Mario said, no, 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 I'm really serious. You know, I live in your apartment building on West 54th Street. You know, you're on the 15th floor, and I'm on the fourth floor. So I have a tape of a reading that we did at the O'Neill Conference, and I'll bring it upstairs on the elevator and put it through your mail slot. And the next morning, I got a call from Tommy Toon, who I'd ever met, who said, I must produce this show. When can we meet? And, and so we, we really wanted to do it. And, uh, and, uh, and one, this will tell you how, this will give you the date of everything. Um, I, I, was, uh, I, I went to the place everybody went to in those days on Third Avenue was, was a place called Maxwell's Plum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
Tommy, Tommy said, meet me there to talk about, you know, our, the possible production of Nine. And he looked incredibly depressed. I said, well, what's the matter with you? You don't seem right. He said, oh, I keep going to these meetings with Mike Nichols and Alan Carr and Jay Preston Allen about this movie. And I said, La Cage Fall? He said, yes. I said, oh, my God. You know, Herman Levin, the producer of My Fair Lady, had an option out on my Bible show in the beginning that I, I had written with Peter Stone. And uh, I came to him and I said, Herman, I've just seen this, this film, uh, this French film. It, it, not, it, it is a musical, except, except it needs songs. And he said, uh, La Cage Fall. He said, yeah. And he said, forget it, kid. Uh, Alan Carr has the rights to that. So I, I said to to Tommy, what do you do? He says, well, I keep meeting with Mike Nichols and Alan Carr and Jay Preston Allen. Uh, I said, please, let me take a shot at writing it. I'll write, I'll write six songs on spec. I'll, I'll audition for it. He said, oh, great. And he reached into his um, floor-to-ceiling uh, overcoat and uh, handed, me, <laughs> handed me this script that had the worst title I've ever seen in my life. And it, the script said, The Queen and I by Jay Preston Allen. So... So I said, the Queen and I? I so he said, yeah, we want to put it in New Orleans. So I'm a jazz historian and a jazz musician and, and know all about New Orleans and that world and that whole, that whole origin of African-American music. And I thought, okay, well, this is great. This, is, this has got to be a pure New Orleans score. Uh, the, show, you know, the, the club would be on Basin Street. You know, and uh, you know what? Uh, uh, the... the the name of the club could be the Queen of Basin Street, and 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 the title of the show could be the Queen of Basin Street, and the main character would be the Queen of Basin Street. <laughs> so, so I wrote the opening, and then I wrote uh, I then I uh, uh, called the Queen of Basin Street, and then I wrote what I figured would be the big uh, the big uh, um, standalone show-stopping number that the main character of the Queen of Basin Street, Albie, would perform in the, sh- in the show. So I wrote Salt and Pepper, which is also on the album. Mm. And, uh, and uh, we met, I didn't have a place in New York, so I, I met them at my mom's apartment, was my, uh, and I was there. All of a sudden, Mike Nichols, Alan Carr, Tommy Toon, and Jay Preston Allen, the author of the book to the film of Cabaret, the author of, of, of the prime of Miss Jean Brody, they sit there, the gods of Olympus sit there. And, um, and I sit down and I, I play the opening. And uh, Nichols said, we really have to tie him to the furniture. And I played the rest of it. And the next thing I know, Alan Carr has sent the check for $10,000 to my agent and we're going to open at the current theater on October the 2nd. And this, by the way, is like late May of 1981. And I took a leave of absence from my teaching job, my, my, my professorship at Yale for one year without pay to do that show. So in any case, all of a sudden, there I am, and I'm writing La Casa Full at, with Mike Nichols. And they went absolutely crazy and and jay and i got down to work and 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 um and of course we you know we the whole idea of nine uh, the, the rogers nine we, we figured okay we'll put that off for a little while because you know i have to do this this show and um and all summer long it was impossible for all of the lawyers who had zero to do with me to make a deal 
for those gods on Mount Olympus. I mean, between Mike Nichols and Tommy Toon and Jay Press and Allen. And then at the time, Tommy had uh, directed downtown uh, at what used to be the Lortel Theater, a production of Cloud Nine, and he asked me to do um, the incidental music, and it was a smash. And all of a sudden, there was Tommy Toon, who had gotten his bona fides as a director, as well as a choreographer. And so his price went up. And, you know, long story short, well, in the words of Herman Levin, it's too late, right? But long, long story short, um, they couldn't make a deal. And it fell apart because they couldn't find a business arrangement that would satisfy everybody. And suddenly, there I was, high and dry, in September of 1981, without a job, without any pay, without any casual full. I had all these songs, and I said to myself, as usual, well, you know what, I'll write another... So one day I write another show about, uh, you know, uh, New Orleans, and I'll, I'll, I'll have these songs in the trunk. And that was the end of that. And then Tommy and I had a cup of coffee, I guess, in mid-October, and he, was, he had nothing to do. And we looked at each other, and he shrugged his shoulders, and he said, let's do nine. And he said, I, I can go to Barry Diller and, and maybe get some support to do a workshop. And hmm. he did, and he did. And we started the workshop on December 19th of 1981. And we finished the workshop on February 7th. And we went into rehearsal for Broadway a few days later, opened on Broadway on May the 9th, no nominated for all those Tonys on May the 10th, mm -hmm. and, and won them all on June the 10th. And, you know, if that Kajifo hadn't fallen apart, I don't know that there'd be a nine. Huh. Any theories on uh, why the terms did work out with Jerry Herman and Arthur Lawrence? Etc. Um, did they? Did Alan Carr get more reasonable? Um, no, no. Jay Jay was out of the picture by then, and they had Harvey Firestein. Right, but my point yeah. is, you know, these people were reasonably famous too, and um, right. you know, do you have any idea if Alan Carr said, "Well, look, uh, it was a good project. I hate to see it go to waste. Um, let's be more reasonable this time around," or anything like well, that? Well, here's the absolute truth. I had just won the Tony. And uh, Flora Roberts, my wonderful agent, came to me and said, look, they want you very badly for it because they loved what I had written. And uh, so that what they will do is uh, they, you know, they've got Harvey to write the book. And I said, well, that's fantastic. Right. Mm -hmm. And they've got Arthur Lawrence to direct and, and you're invited to continue or or, you know, they'll you know, they'll they'll get Jerry Herman, who's wonderful. And, uh, you know, you will have, a, you know, a royalty on the show for your contributions going forward. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? Um, first of all, Jerry Herman, uh, actually, uh, all of you who, who buy or who, uh, uh, Maury Sings Yesden will see that in the 19-page booklet, there are photographs of me because it's in honor of a big birthday of mine. And you'll see a photograph of me in a summer camp uh, owned by Jerry Herman's parents and I'm there at the um. age of six, <laughs> and behind me is Jerry Herman at the age of 17, who was the, who was the senior counselor wow. at that time. And he mm. was writing shows at that time. Mm. And, and speaking of him, I just, Maury, I, I came across a DVD I have of a, a PBS um, special on Frank Lesser called Heart and Soul. 
a wonderful little documentary on Frank Lesser. And I was watching, I hadn't watched it in years since it came out. And among the talking heads are Steve, Stephen Schwartz, Jerry Herman, and Maury Estin. And I thought, oh, how great that they went to the other composer lyricists mm -hmm. to get their perspective on mm -hmm. one of the greatest of all time. Oh, well, Frank was just, a, was such an incredible genius. But I, so, so just, so to finish the story, so I thought about it a lot and I said, you know, I've just done nine there, you know, there are other things I want to do. Um, uh, oh, the, and of course, one of the problems was, is that as it turned out, Alan Carr never had the rights to that movie. He only had the rights to the, sh the stage play in Paris that preceded that movie. And there were many things in Jay's book that were unusable because Alan didn't have the rights to it. They were seen from the movie and not the play. Look, you know, it's two words, right? Show and business. And, mm -hmm. and so I thought, you know what? I know I did such a great job on Lacage uh, mm. there. I know I was so in the zone. You know, I, am I going to be able to reduplicate quite that level of excitement, uh -huh. enthusiasm, and quality in my French version? And Jerry, of course, loved this piece. And I can move on and do my next show and they'll do their show. And if they succeed, I'll have some income from it, right? And so I made that decision wholeheartedly. And I'm, I'm, I will never regret having made that decision. They did such a brilliant job. And, and we're all happy. And, and so finally, you know, here's an opportunity. Uh, and of course, since we're talking about the demos, I thought, and Tommy insisted, we really ought to put, you know, some of the things from, from the Queen of Basin Street on, on, you know, on, on the CD, because they're some of his favorite things in the world. And so that, that's why they're there. And that's why there's something from Ramayana and something from a show called Club Moscow that I'm writing now. Uh, hmm. and, uh, and, and you know what? You just, you, all you do is you, you, you should just write from your best ideas and, uh, and, and with an open heart and, and write what seems to you important to write. So, so that's the great story. And, and I think that Lacage is kind of a wonderful tale of, uh, of it being impossible to know how, how something that may seem like a setback may actually become an opportunity. And mm -hmm. since, since I'm quoted in the, in the booklet of Maurice Sings Yeston to say that the whole reason I decided to put these out, even though, you know, they might not be the best singing I've ever done in places is because, you know, I've, I've spent, I don't know, 35, almost 40 years teaching some of the most brilliant writers of musical theater and other things in my career. And, and, and when you hear these demos and you hear what became of them, I think um, putting this out is an opportunity to encourage young writers to persist. Speaking of encouragement, um, Alan Menken told me that when he was growing up, his father was discouraging. You're going to be a shoe salesman. That's what's going to happen to you. You're not going to be successful doing this. Uh -huh. Were sure. your parents behind you? Uh, uh, <laughs> I think you're telling me the answer. <laughs> you, can, you, you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of people who were able to make a living you know, in, in that business. And my dad had his business and he always hoped that I would, you know, take over his business. Which was what? You know? Well, he was an importer. He was an international importer. He was a, a great guy, great flair. Uh, he would import things from all over the world. Uh, 
and uh, he would input, import sheepskin coats from Yugoslavia, for example, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and, and he was a terrific businessman and a terrific salesman. And uh, you know what? I, and I said, look, Dad, I said, you know, what you do in your everyday life determines the people who you're going to associate with on a daily basis. And, you know, my, you know, my dream of my life is not to, you know, associate every day with men's sportswear buyers from EJ Corvettes and Gimbals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and look, I, I knew I started writing music when I was five years old. You know, I won my first little uh, composition contest when I was seven at the local Jewish community center. I, there was never any question that I was just always going to write music, whether it's the cello concerto or a, or a comedy song or, a, you know, and, and, and Alan, of course, exactly the same. And, you know, when we met, he had just, you know, he was just, had just graduated from uh, NYU and, and, and his be wife, Janice, uh, was uh, dancing with the Lottie Gosler Dance Company. And, uh, you know, I was uh, this impecunious graduate student. And, uh, but, the, and that's, the, and that's where, we, and Ed, Ed Kleban was virtually penniless um, and, uh, and had a job at, uh, at CBS, assisting Goddard Lieberson, the, uh, <laughs> the inventor of the cast album. And Ed had written as part of his uh, BMI workshop uh, uh, job, because uh, 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 Lehman said, you know, we, at a certain point, he says, start your own show. And Ed had written a, a brilliant score to the novel, A Thousand Clouds. And uh, one day, this is one of my favorite stories about Ed, I, I asked once, Ed, why do you write lyrics? And he said, uh, I guess I'm just neurotic that way. <laughs> and and uh, so Ed was in his little cubicle at CBS, uh, built, at CBS building, playing through his score of A Thousand Clowns. And there was a knock on the door and Goddard, Goddard Lieberson walked in and said, what's that? And Ed put his hands over the music and said, oh, no, 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 it's nothing. And uh, Lieberson said, no, no, it sounds like something. He said, uh, what is it? And Ed said, well, I'm writing a musical based on a thousand clowns. And Lieberson said, well, you know, let's, you know, well, let's see, let, let's hear it. And uh, this is all word for word Ed's story to me. Um, and they sat down and they kind of with four hands played through the score. And Ed looked at Lieberson and said, uh, what do you think? And Lieberson said, I think you have found your way out of this building. Mm. And, 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 but, but, you know, but still it was very, very difficult. So, and, uh, and so anybody, you know, you, you just have to find a way to sustain yourself until if you're very fortunate, you, you, you break through. Uh, do you want to hear how Ed's, Ed's story of how we broke through? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So there was Ed and uh, living from hand to mouth and, uh, and, there was Michael Bennett and, and James Dante and, and, and Michael had all these tapes of interviews with dancers and all these autobiographical interesting things about dancers. And he was doing the show and he was looking for a lyricist. He had Marvin Hamlish, who was his go-to and famous uh, uh, composer for dance arrangements. And so uh, Ed went to, uh, Ed went to the, an interview uh, with, with uh, of course, uh, Michael. And he played, uh, well, Ed, Ed, I love, Ed, Ed told me, that, these are Ed's words. He said, I, I played him eight perfect songs. I said, of course, Ed, <laughs> you, you've never written anything but a perfect song. And then Michael said to him, so have you ever written anything about dancers? And Ed said, yeah, I have this, I have this 
review that I'm writing. See, Ed had decided he's going to write a review because he won't have to have the rights to somebody's novel. He wasn't going to do that twice. Um, and uh, and uh, he said, I, I have this review called Gallery, and it's about a woman who's got problems in her love life, and she's wandering through a gallery of paintings. And every time, you know, she sees one, I, I take one, the, the painting and I kind of write a, a musical theater number about it uh, that takes on a, 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 on a funny angle about it. Like, for example, there's this, this Van Gogh painting of Gauguin's shoes. And so uh, I write a paper about a banker working in New York and, and, you know, he wants to have Gauguin's shoes and he does a tap dance. And so he said, anyway, he said, in my show gallery, I've written a song uh, based on a, a, a a Mondrian painting called Broadway Boogie Woogie. And so I wrote this song about Broadway gypsy dancers looking for work. And Michael says, play it for me. And Ed plays it for him. And Michael says, you got the job. And that, and, and this is why after when Ed passed away, regrettably so tragically young, uh, his lawyer came to me and said, um, you're in Ed's will and he's designated you to take half of the income that comes from uh, from chorus line in perpetuity, and to for you to create an organization that will give the Kleban Prize and give anywhere from a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year to a worthy lyricist, because composers can always get a job, you know, playing cocktail piano. But what is a lyricist supposed to do? And of course, if you want to research that, just have a look at all the winners of the of the Kleban Prize of the last, I don't know, 20 or more years. And you'll see Tony Award winners and Pulitzer Prize winners. And, and that's, what, that's what Ed did uh, with, with, with his fortune. And, and um, now you mentioned lyric, uh, lyricist. Here you are saying at the age of five, you were writing music. When did you des- decide to write your own lyrics? Uh, at exactly the same time, I was crazy <laughs> for Lewis Carroll, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just nuts for Lewis Carroll. And, and I was, and Edwin Lear. And when I was, and, and when I became a boy scout uh, at the age of 11, my scoutmaster was just an incredibly brilliant, educated man, especially in sort of um, uh, English literature. And he introduced me to, Hilaire Bullock uh-huh. uh, and, and Hilaire Bullock w- just wrote the funniest, most insane things. You know, Lord, L- Lord Lucky by a curious fluke became a most important Duke from living in a vile hotel a long ways east in Camberwell. He rose in less than half an hour to riches, dignity and power. Well, all of those things. And, you know, a python I should not advise that needs, needs some glasses <laughs> for its eyes. Uh, so I loved that. And of course, by then I loved all of the great Broadway lyricists who I've been listening to uh, growing up. And I, I just started writing lyrics, I guess, probably at the age of eight or nine. Mm-hmm. I can actually remember uh, my dad uh, did a lot of business in Montreal and he would rent a house north of Mo- Montreal in Quebec in the, in the early 1950s. And as a child, we would go up there. It was French Canada. And, um, and, and uh, all I ever heard every day on the radio was PF and, Maurice Chevalier, which is, I think, why there's a lot of French influence in my music, like mm. Folie Berger, for example. And um, a man came, one of his friends came with a guitar, and he played a song that he had written. It was a very funny song, and I'll never forget it. It was like lightning had hit me in the head, and I went, oh, that's where songs come from. Hmm. You, you can make them up. 
And that's mm -hmm. why I started doing it. And I, you know, that's just been my, that's just been my, my life ever since then. I've, I've never known anything else. All right. Now let's take Stephen Schwartz, who certainly uh, made a big splash on Broadway, having three shows running at the same time, um, writing music and lyrics, but also he's been known to uh, write only lyrics to other people's music. Uh, do, do you ever consider that? Uh, if some, uh, has, has that ever happened? In fact, to you? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. My friend Frank, Frank Wildhorn asked me to write some lyrics for his thing. I think he and I have about five songs and, uh, and uh, you can find them. And Linda sings them beautifully. Uh, one of them was kind of the Bells of St. Paul was a hit that, he, that I did. Sure, absolutely. And reverse, would you, uh, would you only do uh, music and no lyrics? I guess I would, but I've never been in a situation where anybody asked me to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if somebody did, you know, it wouldn't be, it, it, it wouldn't be worth it to me because, you know, if I, I think I can do my best. I think I can be do my best lyrics if I'm writing the music, and my best music if I'm writing the lyrics. Sure, I get that. That makes perfect sense to me too. Um, you mentioned um, going to see Grand Hotel in Boston and coming up with seven or eight songs. As time went on, as you were watching Grand Hotel after it was frozen, did you say to yourself, "Gee, you know, if we had more time, I would have loved to have written a song for..." That spot, that character, anything like quite that? Quite the opposite. Quite the quite the opposite. No time and panic are are are, are the greatest prods to inspiration. <laughs> you have no choice. A preview is preview, and you come up with solutions that you that you can. Let me give you a perfect example. Um, the in, in, in Grand Hotel and the second act, the magnificent David Carroll. And by the way, I, I really had no time at all because there was no opening. There was no opening at all. And and there I was at the Ritz Carlton Hotel, and and the show the show began with um, the secretaries hitting little bells, ding ding, Grand Hotel, ding ding, answering the phone, Grand Hotel, Grand Hotel, and there was no opening. And and Tommy had repressed all of the applause, and uh, and, and so I said. Uh, why are you repressing all the applause? He said, well, you know, I, I, I've seen this terrific Wagner opera. I said, Tristan? He said, yeah. He <laughs> said, and I said, well, he was trying to write Endless Melody. That's not a musical. And after he wrote Tristan, he wrote Meistersinger von Nuremberg. And, and that, that's like a musical. You applaud after every number. So I pointed to a, the painting on the wall and I said, how do you know where the painting stops in the world and the wall begins? And Tommy said, uh, the frame. And I said, well, the applause is the frame. And it's also the audience's way of telling itself it's having a good time. Absolutely. And that night, I wrote 12 endings. Uh, and the opening. In one night, the, the night I had arrived there. And we put him in the show the next day. The opening was simply that uh, I had been to, the, to, the, uh, to that hotel in Boston, a very famous hotel, um, and, and the Ritz-Carlton. And it had really plush, uh, it had plush uh, carpets, and it had beautiful easy chairs that you could be so comfortable with in, in the lobby. And, and it was very famous because, you know, they had those kind of old-fashioned elevators, you know, that the accordion-type elevators, and mm -hmm. then the guy would – and in those elevators, they had, I don't know what it was, some sort of scent. But everybody would talk about the fabulous smell, the fabulous scent, 
of the uh, of the elevators at the Ritz Carlton, and of course, gorgeous chandeliers. And so, you know, I was sitting in the room at two o'clock in the morning, and I figured, okay, so you know, velvet stairs, easy chairs, right? Um, gold glowing lights, uh, uh, chandeliers, light appears, uh, crystal lights gently blowing, uh, air, uh, um, uh, perfumed air in the etc. Come begin in old Berlin, you're in the Grand Hotel. And that was the opening, uh, just describing the Ritz-Carlton. And, and then about, and I hadn't, then there was no sleep for the next five days. Uh, we, needed a, we needed a song for David Carroll to sing when um, Lillian Montevecchi finds him in her room trying to steal her necklace. And uh, the scene was, uh, what are you doing in my room? And, uh, and he says, I've come to breathe the air that you breathe. Uh, which and Peter Stone was there fixing the book by then, and uh, and uh, and I started to write a song, and I thought, you know what, this is a situation where she's supposed to be in her fifties, he's in his early thirties or late twenties. It's impossible that there's going to be love at first sight between these two. Plus, he's just been there ste- stealing her her necklace. And so, you know, when you have a problem in a musical, sometimes the best thing to do is to um, write, write, write a song about it because love can't happen here. But, you know, we're often in a case where love seems unlikely. And yet, in spite of the fact that it can happen, it does. So I started writing Love Can Happen for David that night. Uh, but then I realized when I finished the song that, that getting into it, that scene isn't going to work. So I, I had breakfast with Stone the next day, no sleep. And I said, look, here's the song. Uh, and um, so here's, here's my idea. Uh, she comes in and uh, he's stealing her necklace and she says, what are you doing in my room? And he says, uh, Madame, I've come to breathe the air that you breathe. And how about she picks up the phone and says, you have 30 seconds to come up with a better line. Otherwise, I'm calling the police. And he says, uh, I'm a fan. Mademoiselle, I have followed you everywhere. And Peter said, great, let's put it in. And that's the show. That's it's never been different from that. Um, but but in answer to your question, in terms of time, the biggest problem was in the second act. Uh, David Carroll uh, has to uh, has to catch the German businessman trying to rape the secretary, and he's in in the other room, and he, and he and he and he comes in, and and uh, and he gets shot. The German businessman shoots him, and uh, and Reinfors wrote a song there, and it was a very old-fashioned operatic kind of song, and it simply wasn't working. So Toon said, "Well, you know, he's got to have a song," and I said, uh, uh, "Tommy, uh, he's dead. He, he's just been shot dead through the heart." He said, "Yeah, I know, but he's starting the show. He's got to have another song," and and I I was depressed. I was I was out of bullets. I didn't have a clue, and so I just took a walk. Uh, around the corner from the Colonial Theater in Boston. And I remembered a story, a very, very funny story. I had asked, this is Ed Cleveland again. I once asked Cleveland, have you ever contemplated suicide? And Ed said, yeah. He said, uh, but you know, the thing about suicide is that you don't want to get hurt. He said, so I considered <laughs> eating a seated roll as fast as I could and choking to death. <laughs> and so I was, I, I was thought, you know, what am I going to do? I, I, if I can't write this song, I'm going to have to kill myself. And that made me think about Ed. And as I was thinking about that, I was passing on my left a Chinese restaurant. And I thought, okay, I will take Cleveland's advice. I go to this restaurant, I'll order an egg roll. 
instead of a seated roll. And uh, I'll eat it. I'll choke on it. I won't have to write this song. So <laughs> I, I, I ordered an egg roll. And, and I thought, and as I was sitting there waiting for the egg roll, I thought to myself, wait a minute. When you die, isn't your entire life supposed to pass before your eyes in a split second? What if you get shot and I'll just run into the front of the stage and his, and his whole life will pass before his eyes and that'll be the song. And I opened up the Vicky Bounds novel that was in my hand at the time and it said, there lay the, the Baron on the floor bleeding bleeding to death. And he remembered he had been a soldier in the war and bullets whizzed past him and his whole life story. And so, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, that's, that's the song I'm going to write. And as he's singing that song front and center at the lip of the stage in, a, in his own light, his red, his white shirt is turning red. So I wrote the song and I played it for Tommy and he said, great. He said, we'll put a little squeegee in his pocket with a little, that goes and and I swear to God that that's that's the moment and David Carroll was so extraordinary there uh, you know and it's still one of my favorite things of the show because it's crazy. Well, roses roses at the station. Uh, you that's know, it. That, roses at the station. R- roses at the station uh, is the point in which I start to lose it in the whole show. I, I can't control not crying through the rest of the show. Me too. Me too. Um, and and when he says, "I spent my childhood on horseback, my uh, my boyhood in the fields," my, and my boyhood in the fields, bullet was right. I was a soldier in the war, and the bullets whizzed by my head. Not one hit me until Not now. Not one hit me. I I rode on I mean, horseback. I yeah. mean, I, I just I'm tearing up now thinking about yeah. it. It was such a such an important show. And I'm and, here, and I'm here, I made it. I told you I was going to get away. We were going to be happy for the rest of our lives. I'll meet you at the, at the, at the station. I'm going to be holding yeah. roses, red roses. And, and there he is, and we see him bleeding out as he's singing that. So, so sometimes time is not your friend. Sometimes the absence of time is, is your friend. Uh, and, and so having said that I, I i i told myself don't forget to say this on your program because we've had six to eight months of frustrated writers and young people and young writers who want to get a show on and want to get some work done and all of a sudden everything stopped and actors who want to get on a stage but i have to tell you every time i've had a setback somehow it's become i've been able to make it be an opportunity so all, all of the brilliant writers out there, and I know you're working and I know you're writing, this is all of a sudden the treadmill that you were on, the daily grind day and night that you were repeating month after month after month has stopped. And you're in a situation which is giving you an opportunity to be creative and respond to the time that you have in a way that you never could have expected. And I know for so many of you, you will look back on this and say, you know what, this is where I came up with that idea. This is when I wrote that thing, or this is when I abandoned this or did that. And I promise you, it's an opportunity. And, and, and with all of the horribleness that we've lived through and are continuing to live, live through, there are going to be <coughs> flowers that grow from this. Mm-hmm. And we I will, agree entirely. And, and we will all come roaring back, and especially will the theater. 
All right. Now, uh, the last time I saw you, I don't want to give too much away because you may not want to talk about it, and that's fine, too. But the last time I saw you, you mentioned a show. I'm just going to use one word, Brooklyn. Um, is that still happening? Oh, no, I'm writing. I know I'm well into it. I'm writing a show about the story of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is so unbelievably inspiring. Uh, you know, it's just it's such an incredible story. And, you know, sometimes the, 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 the greatest gift you have is if you if you truly know what your show is about, you know, um, I, I, that, you know, that actually there there's that funny story. Well, it was not such a funny story. The story this the legendary story about Jerry Robbins saying mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, you know, saying Bakken to Bach and Harnick, what's the show about? And, um, and, and so was, and somebody says tradition. So of course uh, I always track these things down. Right. So I asked Sheldon, I said, that's, that's the story. Is, is, is that what happened? And Sheldon said, uh, oh, almost, he said, <laughs> Robbins wanted to know what, what's the show about. And we said, it's about these people in a shtetl and they're Jewish people and they're Russians, et cetera, et cetera. And Robin said, I don't want to do that show. That's, that's the Goldbergs 50 years ago. And so the conversation continued until somebody said, it's really about the younger people in all, in every generation it's the same and they are bridling and they are rebelling against the strictures of the older generation the older traditions and jerry said that's the show i, I want to do and he said if that's the case not only the opening but every scene and every song has to be about in some way that tradition and and, and that's what that show is and that's one of the reasons it's so great so i realized that that the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge was built by a genius uh, of a man and his son, uh, by, by an immigrant who had come to America, uh, in, in, in who had born in 1806, and uh, he was a student of Hegel. His name was John Rubling, and Hegel said that he was my best student, and he was a brilliant architect, and he and he created this. Um, this uh, wonderful community in Western Pennsylvania. And even though, even though he was, he was a farmer, he never abandoned uh, uh, architecture. And uh, I, I can't tell the whole story, but basically he literally invented the concept of the, of the suspension bridge and he co-created the concept of weaving metal wire into a rope. And so created cable and the Roebling cable company. And, uh, and then, and, and but the thing is, is that he was deeply inspired, as all young young men and women were, by the French and industrial French uh, Revolution and the and the American Revolution, the whole idea of democracy and freedom, and um, and was imbued with it. And his son Washington Roebling uh, also became an architect and was a hero of the Civil War. And um, and there they were uh, in 1868 in in Brooklyn Heights. You can go down and see it. And they were planning the bridge. And uh, that was three days after the end of the Civil War. And so here's the society. And Susan B. Anthony was in town trying to get support for, uh, for the, the, the uh, constitutional amendment that, would in- that she insisted would include women as well as black men. And, and, uh, and, uh, all, and sh- they all met at the church there. That was, uh, the, and the, the pastor of that church was, uh, you know, was uh, Henry Beecher, who was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and, and all of those people were there at the same time, and 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 I and I realized this was a country that had to be, you know, that had to be joined together again, 
and the Transcontinental Railroad hadn't yet joined the East with the West. And, and, and men and women had to, had, to be, had to be joined with equal rights. Uh, Susan B. Anthony was making speeches about how a woman should get the same pay that a man gets if she does equal work. And, and black people had, had, to, had to be made full citizens with, with voting rights. And this riven, divided country had to be put together again. And here we were, magically joining two cities and making them one. And I realized the whole world that was going on at that time was a world in which things that were separated had to be bridged. And I just felt, I want to write that because I felt that we're still there. And I think when I want to write a show, I know it's going to take years of my life and it's got to be worth something to me. I have to know what I'm doing and I have to know why am I sitting in this theater? Why is this important to me? What does this thing on a stage have to do with my life? And I know if I do my job right on the Brooklyn Bridge, which is called, by the way, the title is A Bridge for All Time. Mm -hmm. um, when I walk out of that show, I'm going to walk out on the streets of Black Lives Matter, on the streets of what's going on now, and realize that this task, this American task, uniquely American task, is one that will never end. And, and of course, the best part of it is that we built a magnificent thing and it doesn't sink. <laughs> well, if you get this show on more, you can do it on a double bill with Kelly. Okay. <laughs> I, it's a deal. <laughs> of all of the songs on this uh, album, what is one that means the most to you personally? Oh, wow. Out of 40 songs? Yes. Out of oh, 40, pick one. So hard to tell. Well, this I mean, I wouldn't want to ask an easy question, so. No, no. Well, you know, it's funny. A song that means that can mean the most isn't necessarily related to whether it's my favorite song or whether it's my best lyric or my favorite melody or anything like that. You know, you can't you can't do that anyway. I mean, my my father's mother used to say, you know, your children are like your, your the fingers on your hand. Which one would you lose? Um, but I would say, prop. It would be, th there would be two of them. One of them because I never wanted to play it for anybody and I had no idea it would receive uh, the encomiums that it had. Uh, I, I, I never thought that new words would even see, I, I didn't want to even play it for anybody. Hmm. Um, uh, and and that was, that's because, um, well, that, that's because it was an assignment by Lehman Engel. He said to the class, you know what, you're not writing enough. Write a song. I want you all to write a song that starts with describing an inanimate object and take it somewhere. And, uh, and the next week when everybody went to play their song, I didn't play mine because I thought people would think that, you know, I had a, a three-month-old son and people would think it's just a mushy song from me to my little boy. <laughs> and uh, so after the class was over, Alan said to me, why didn't, why didn't you write a song? And I said, I did, but... You know, it's a personal song, so I, I didn't think it was appropriate. And he said, play it for me. And, and I did. And then, and then, of course, he started crying. And he called Lehman over and said, you have to hear this. So, uh, But I think, that, I think that one of the breakthrough songs for me uh, was Unusual Way. Uh, and I think it was because uh, something about it dives down so deep in the lyric. But also something about it summarizes everything that I am or 
ever wanted to be about having every note of music I've ever heard that's inspired me and all my heroes somehow be reflected in a song. And between the, between the classical influence of the piano part there, the melody itself, the, the sentiment, the modernity of, of the lyric, it was a breakthrough for me. And, and, uh, and, and I never thought I'd, I would be writing a song like that. And it kind of <clears throat> transformed my, my notion of what I could expect of myself going forward in life. That- well, Lehman Engen did say that um, New Words was his favorite song of all those that uh, he had heard in the BMI workshop. But, you know, we've spoken a lot about Lehman here, and I want to know your opinion um, about what's been happening with lyric writing today. Because uh, in Lehman's workshop, if indeed you came in with a song where an M rhymed with an N uh, or a, a singular with a plural, uh, you'd never hear the end of it. So as a result, um, here we are today in a, a, a world where there are half rhymes, slant rhymes, no rhymes. Um, uh, how, how do you feel about this? Um, oh, I, you, know, uh, you know, it's really funny. I was just reading one of my favorite writers, Auden, who rhymes brilliantly and then sometimes does partial rhymes and things like that. Um, you know, I, it's the exception that proves the rule. Uh, and uh, sometimes... Um, there are occasions when, when what you have to say is either so funny, so a non-rhyme can, can do that for you, Hmm. or in fact, so unbelievably important and moving and devastating that you don't want to be distracted by the rhyme. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that it's always, it's a wonderful thing to uh, to do perfect rhymes uh, and and but i i do I, it's no it's no longer uh, a kind of explosive issue uh, that will make people say no you must never rhyme an m with an n or anything like that of course not uh and and so uh i've been i've taught that workshop for over 27 i did a session two weeks ago uh in a zoom conference with and i heard some wonderful lyrics and I heard some great rhymes and I heard some non-rhymes and uh, it's no longer an issue. Before we let you go, we sh- I should note there's another wonderful recent-ish album from PS Classics, and that is the cast album of Anything Can Happen in the Theater, the musical yeah. world of Maury Yeston, which is really very enjoyable. Uh, for oh, my God. Well, Doug Besteman did yeah. such a wonderful job, oh, in this didn't he? Good heavens. Yeah. Yeah, and those sing those those performers are just absolutely fabulous. And yes. uh, you've got some things from the Queen of Basin Street in that. You've got some things from in the beginning on that. No women in the Bible, right? Uh, which is done in synagogues all the time. <laughs> is there a, other than salt and pepper? Is there something else from Queen? Oh of yeah, there are, yeah. There's salt and pepper. Uh, there's the Mardi Gras ball. Uh, there's. Uh, uh, and there's one of my favorite ballads I've ever written called Mississippi Moon, which is uh, which is my, you know, I didn't realize until after I wrote it that it was my love letter to Hoagie Carmichael. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I really am a jazz musician and I really, you know, I, and historian as well. And I, I, I worship all the great songwriters of the early and mid 20th century. And um and just writing in that Mississippi moon is one of those, um, is again, 
a kind of song that's very, very important to me because um, I get to show myself how there are no, there are no stylistic limitations that, that um, in the same way, you know, I've, I've learned to speak French and some German and some Italian. And I think that musical styles are also like foreign languages to learn. And it's very good to be literate in, in a lot of them. And I loved writing Mississippi Moon. Let me ask you one question before you go. We've we've kept you way further than you, no, I'm delighted. We asked you. Um, one of our listeners, Juliet Green, asked. Uh, to, she said that listening to something as complex as the multi-track Germans at at the spa, uh, were you able to do these vocals in one take for each part? Because it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, as a matter of fact. The yes, uh, in some cases uh, you're doubling uh, your voice. In other cases, you're singing a counter melody, and uh, and composition is again, you know, you you hear it in your head, uh, mm. and 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 so I, I could. In other words, it's a perfect example of why I would do these demos and how helpful they were because I could play. I could play. The Germans are coming. And here in my head, la, 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 la. But to be able to do them together. And yes, um, I find that if I keep one, if I, if I keep one earphone in my ear of, of what's being recorded, mm, yeah. it's very helpful to sort of sing along with myself and stay on pitch. Hey, so scratch track. The great question. The answer is, uh, yeah, I, I was, you're doing it in one take. Or actually, uh, it, you know, if, if you do do a clinker, you can always, since you're on an independent track, you can always do that track all over again. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, not that, it's not that complicated. Mm-hmm. Well, Maury, I want to thank you for joining us on Broadway mm-hmm. Radio. It's really been a, a treasure to have you uh, talk with us about your new album, Maury Sings Yes in the Demos, which is available on PS Classics. We'll have a link to everything on our show notes so everybody can get to it. And uh, please come back and talk with us again on Broadway Radio. I will. I've loved it. And, and stay he- healthy and stay safe. And it was wonderful to, uh, to chat with all of you. Here with the roses at the station. All my life I have lived as I wanted to. All my life I have had everything that I wanted. I spent my childhood in the fields. My boyhood on horseback. A soldier in the war The bullets whizzed past my ear But not one came near me till now Till now Wow, that was a great hour to spend with Maury. We didn't expect to spend an hour with him, and thank him so much for giving us so much of his time. So before we get on to trivia and wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jennifer, Michael, for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about, including all the information from uh, Maury Sings Yeston. So, uh, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Only one musical could mention these four great musical hits of 1964. 
What is the musical that names them? And what are the four hits? Well, Tony Janicki and Mike Meany answered Merrily We Roll Along, which mentions Funny Girl, Fiddler, and Dolly. But neither he nor he could come up with a fourth. So then Tony Janicki said, the question may possibly be about four great musical song hits of 1964. A Hard Day's Night had a Hard Day's Night, Can't Buy Me Love, Twist and Shout, and She Loves You. I'll admit that I wasn't specific enough in my question. I said hits, but I didn't specify that hits applied solely to entire shows, or for that matter, stage musicals. The way the question was worded, I could have meant single songs and movie musicals. So Tony gets credit. Greg Pavlak went the same route, although he did choose a, choose a stage musical, not a film one. Motown, he said, had four hits from 1964. My Guy, Where Did Our Love Go, Dancing in the Streets, and Baby, I Need Your Lovin'. So he gets credit, too. But they don't get as much credit as Steve Bell, Richard Carey, and Robert Lobiondo, who, in that order, could see what I was getting at. Well, I did say that the answer would be simply deceptive. And it was. For yes, I was indeed referring to the aforementioned Merrily We Roll Along, where we hear that Franklin Shepard and Charlie Kringus have written a musical that's Funny Girl, Fiddler, and Dolly combined. A surefire, genuine, walkaway, blockbuster, Linesdown, Broadway, Bofola, sensational box office, Lollapalooza, gargantuan hit. And that show is Musical Husbands, which is the fourth big hit of 1964. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but if you went to the Hal Prince exhibit at Lincoln Center, on the wall was an early outline of Merrily that stated the show within the show was to be called Musical Husbands, colon, The Barbara Hutton Story. <laughs> Barbara Woolworth Hutton, in fact, was one of the Woolworth heirs when that change of stores was flourishing. She had no fewer than seven husbands. But as the show got closer to production, I guess the creators thought that it would be in better taste not to mention her, which I guess I shouldn't have done either. And speaking of Merrily, it leads us to next week's question. Frank Sinatra recorded Good Thing Going from that show. His recording has now even been incorporated in the revised script. And although Sinatra never deigned to do a Broadway musical, he certainly recorded songs from many of them. But Merrily which ran only 16 performances, wasn't the shortest-running show to have a song sung by Sinatra. What was? Give me its name, what musical it was from, and tell me how many performances it ran on Broadway. I just read that answer the other day, so I know it. <laughs> <laughs> if you have an answer to that other than Michael Portantier, please email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of uh, Michael Portantier, Jenna Tessa Fox, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Maybe it lasted a day Maybe it lasted an hour But somehow it will never end In a very unusual way I think I'm in love with you in a very unusual way, I want to cry. Something inside me goes weak. So
something inside me surrenders And you're the reason why You're the reason why You don't know what you do to me You don't have a clue 